0: Hello, I'm your host Jim McLean, welcome to the latest edition of the Banterflix podcast. This show is a Blade Runner special. We're going to be reviewing Blade Runner 2049, which has recently been released on DVD and Blu-ray. And to celebrate the news that Secret Cinema will be putting on special screenings of the final cut of Ridley Scott's original film in London later this year, I thought we'd look back at the impact and legacy the original film had and its enduring appeal to cinemagoers. So to kick things off, Blade Runner 2049 has recently been released on DVD and Blu-ray, so I caught up with one of our newest contributors, John Monahan, to talk about the film.
1: The nickel is for the colonial ships.
0: Closest to any of them, or any of us, is going to get to that grand life off-world. So come on now. What show do you have in mind?
1: Because I got all kinds. No, no, no. no. I'm not buying. No, no, no. This is just my game, and I play it fair. No, no. I mean, bigger than you. Bigger than you were trying to shut me down. Bigger than you,
0: and they were, they were (laughs) men at that. So that's a clip of Blade Runner 2049, and I'm joined now by John Monaghan, and we're going to be talking about the film. So, hello, John, and we'll start First and foremost, by, by, give us your initial thoughts on Blade Runner. Are you a fan of the film? I know there has been some people who have, haven't have really been enamoured with the film. I think particularly it's near three hour runtime. But where do you stand on this belated sequel?
1: Well, I am a fan. Uh, my initial reaction when I walked out of the cinema was I was a bit stunned at what it'd seen because I was trying to like process it because it is a long film and there's a lot going on with the visual and the audio and every, just everything all at once It took me maybe an hour to kind of process it and be like, yeah, this was a really good film and I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I I think it's great. Um, I know Blade Runner can be a hard recommendation, and I'd say, so is this, and I think a lot of people that came out and didn't like it were put off because of the trailer, because the way the trailer's cut, it looks a lot more action heavy, but it is the same as the first one in the sense that there are action scenes, but they're few and far between. So I do think a lot of people's dislike of it might have came from the trailer being slightly misleading. But, yeah, no, I do think it's great. It's just everything from Roger Deakins' cinematography, like the expression, every frame of painting. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, like, you could take a shot from this, specifically that desert stuff in Vegas, and I reckon you could, like, hang that up in a gallery or something and people would think it's great. So, yeah, no, I think it's it was really, really good, and I would recommend a lot of people see it. Yeah, I
0: I totally agree. Like you've mentioned, Roger Deakins, you've also got Hans Zimmer involved. This so there's a lot of ingredients there. No, for me that I really like about the film, and I think as a whole, it, I think it does overall. I think it's it's a largely positive viewing experience for myself. And I, I know I, on my review, I give it four out of five. I took a little time to ponder it. I actually went back to rewatch the film. I seen it on the IMAX screen in London, then came back home and watched it just in the normal 2D print. I refuse to see this film in 3D, but. It's a film you've mentioned. Like it It is slow. I think it is a little sluggish at times, but I think that's not a bad thing. I think it does pause for thought, and it allows us to open up that world that we were introduced to with Ridley Scott. Like I mean, it expands the story beyond the L.A. setting of the original, and we go from the dark and dingy L.A. to the, the dust-filled, um, sun-drenched wasteland, as you've touched on there with Las Vegas, and... Uh, I do think the trailer is slightly misleading. The, the more I think about it, because cause I had stayed away from the trailers. I've I've made this this pledge this year to try and stay from away from as many trailers as I can, so that I don't find my 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 cinematic experience spoiled. So so maybe I didn't get that, but having looked back at the trailers now, I think they are trying to. They're trying to sell something that maybe isn't there, but I think the, the marketing side of things maybe didn't get a sense of what this film was about, and it is very, very vague. Harrison Ford is very prominent in all the trailers, all the posters, but he's kind of like that Luke Skywalker kind of role that we have in The Force Awakens. He's, he's someone who has to be found in this film, and I mean, I don't want to go too spoilery, but I mean, we can discuss this. The film has been out. He gets more screen time than Mark Hamill but he's not someone that's in this film from start to finish. and I do actually think the film clicks into gear when when Deckard finally appears, because he has some answers, not all of them, and I'm going to come back to that in a wee minute. But, I mean, for you, how important it was that we had Harrison Ford back? Do you think it was a big thing that we had Deckard back in the sequel, or do you think, like the Alien franchise, we can expand beyond Ripley?
1: Well, I think this is a sequel that does that thing well, that it's set 30 years after so it doesn't try and reinvent it so much and doesn't try and take Harrison forward and make him do all the great big action set pieces and focus on him. It just takes what came before and builds on it and they use him in quite an interesting way where he is in a position where he is the kind of the objective and then you start to find out what he's been doing for the last thirty years and it's it's really interesting. So, they use him quite effectively that way, where they don't have, if it was focusing on him, you know, it would kind of be like uh, if they tried to action up his stuff as Han Solo any, any more than it was in The Force Awakens. I No, I just think he, he was used quite well, and that when he does come in, like, that sequence that he comes in with him and Ryan Gosling is, like, without spoiling him too much, uh, that sequence in a ballroom yeah. is just great. It's so well put together, and and he gives a really good performance as well.
0: I think I said in my review, like he does bring some much needed humor to the film. It's it's that kind of traditional Harrison Ford gruff humor, like that that no other actor, I think, maybe bar from Dennis Quaid, can can cl- come close to matching. He does bring that kind of deadpan humor that I think the film needed. He injects a bit of energy into it. You know, he he delivers a, a quote, I think, from Treasure Island with. As I say, that that gruffness that we come to expect from Harrison Ford. I really liked one thing in particular, and there's a lot of things I want to talk about with you about Blade Runner. But I actually like now how they treated the Deckard question from the original Blade Runner. They treated almost, I think as I said in the TV show, like Schrodinger's cat. It's uh, he, he is both a replicant and he is both human. We are not going to give you a definitive answer. He can be, if you choose to believe he is a replicant, he is a replicant. If you choose to believe he is a human, he is a human. But we are not going to tell you that you are right or you are wrong. That was one of the things that was, the minute they announced the sequel, I kind of went, well, I don't want that question answered. Because I don't think, uh, look, I know we're going to be talking later on about the original Blade Runner, but I actually think that Deckard question from the original Blade Runner has kind of been constructed in the various um, edits scott has done since the film it was never when you watch the film first time round, the first cut granted there was studio intervention that wasn't a big issue in the original blade runner it really wasn't it's become over time and i think they've treated it so no matter what of the kind of I think seven versions of blade runner you have possibly watched i think you can have a sequel that kind of carries on from all of those films and that was one thing i really liked but but what about you
1: well about him being a replicant. I or not. Think, or not being a replicant. There's a a scene that he has with uh there's Jared Leto comes in and <clears throat> monologues a bit about stuff. But some of the stuff he's saying seems to hint in one direction but I don't believe most of the stuff coming out of his mouth as a character. So I I, I dunno see I do find, in my opinion, that if he is, it defeats his character arc in most of the story of the original because he had to learn sympathy for Replicants and if he was one, it's like, oh, a robot has feelings. But it, I'm glad it didn't come up in this and I do think this film is accessible if you haven't seen the first one because I took my uh, girlfriend she hadn't seen the first one. I kind of explained to her in passing what it was sort of about but she really enjoyed it and anything she didn't understand, which was just one or two callbacks that she knew was a callback, she just wasn't getting. I just said, oh yeah, that was that thing from the first one. And I, I find that one of the things that really does well is the noir aspect of it. That you're brought along this journey with Ryan Gosling's character Kay. That I found myself fooled by the same thing he gets fooled by in the the mystery side of the story. And it wasn't until he realised he had it wrong that I went, oh, so have I. I have the same... I've made the same mistake in logic that he has. So then when that kind of... It all gets wrapped up. you The the revelation does feel quite refreshing because some people might have expected it, but I didn't, so... And I think his performance as well drove that because you believed that he believed his own crap. So... And I think, I actually think the performances across the board from the majority of the cast are really, really strong. My only issue is Jared Leto, because um, the director said that he wanted an older actor, possibly David Boy. Mm-hmm. and you can tell that that should have been an older man because he's coming off with all this world-weary dialogue. And he, I like his eye-camera thing, so they're, they're they're pretty good. But um, everybody, like Connie Olsen's really good at, in this. Um, the actress that plays his Hologram wife,
0: Uh, Anna de Armas. If I'm getting that correctly, Joy, because this is a film, of course, of love and joy Mm -hmm. um, for the female roles. Um, You've mentioned like some of the supporting cast. I I was one of the issues I have with Blade Runner is well, not just kind of Jared Leto's Wallace character, but the the villains. But I'll come on to that. But just while you're mentioning, you've mentioned Ryan Gosling. I thought Gosling was was brilliant in this. I, I mean, he's he's that kind of. I think, as I said in in my written review, I think he's that he's in a similar vein to the characters we've seen him play in some of the Nicholas Winding Refn roles. That kind of disengaged, but he's much more humane in this, and it's someone who kind of you can see goes along a journey. and And I, I don't want to spoil. You've hinted at what we're talking about. He does come to believe he's slightly more special than what he is, and I. <clears throat> I kind of hoped that it wasn't going to be that straightforward. So I'm kind of glad in, in what they did and how they did it. And it, it, is com- it does come back to that core idea that, of Philip K. Dick's source material. Like, are we defined by our memories? Which is why I really, really liked it. Um, but I thought he was excellent. But I've mentioned Jared Leto as a view. I did have an issue with some of the villains here. Because when we go back to the original Blade Runner, uh, we don't have Villain of the Week villains in in the original Blade Runner, we have complicated, rounded characters who are replicants who want more than the four years of life that they are given by the, the then Tyrell company. On a se- on a side note, it's great to know that whilst Tyrell have gone, it's good to know that like Coca Cola, Atari still exist in this dystopian future. But I think the villains that we have this time round, they're not as fleshed out. Like I mean, Wallace. You know, he really just wants this supposed new replicant, which is probably as far as we can go, for his ultimately his own financial gain. And, you know, love, as great as she is, and she kind of reminds me of a kind of inflected Rachel. Rachel is much more damaged and fragile in the original film, but she's, you know, she's much more hard-ass than that. She's she's kind of, like, a, a fantastic femme fatale. But, again, she's someone who's just following orders. She's just kind of she has to ultimately find Eckhart and retrieve him back, and that's kind of what she does. I don't think the the villains and their motivation are as interesting as um, Roy Batty from, from the original.
1: No, um, not really. Uh, what I found about Love as an interesting character was that she had that similar arc as Ryan Gosling's character to a point where she also thought she was special. Mm-hmm. She's as a line where she says about Neander Wallace, give her a name, so that makes her special. But when the illusion is broken for him, you feel it. When it's broken for her, it just kind of happens. So I found that, unlike the original four replicants came back in the original... Neander Wallace is kind of a, a non-starred villain. He felt like he was setting up for something else that never happened, and I don't know whether that's the intention to do another. It, prob- mm. it like I don't think it is due to, um, if you've been tracking this financially, but uh, it felt like he was going to go off and do something, but we just never got to see it. But there are... One of the things I will give the film massive credit for is uh, how it looks... On a technical standpoint as well, I have said about the shots already and Roger Deacon's cinematography, but the whole art department side to it is incredible. And I even gauged that from when the first trailer came out. You see uh, the big pink lady with the blue mm-hmm. hair. That's a practical effect. Mm-hmm. It was a room filled with smoke, and they projected a big woman for Ryan Gossling to look at. And there was a behind the scenes video recently of, or a picture of the the Las Vegas desert stuff that you see in the trailer and that that was a room with actual, like, orange smoke and light. And just that level of, you know, attention to detail, you you see it when you're watching it. Um, it's the same, somebody put up a fact about wood is a, a rarity in 2049, but Neander Wallace's, like, room that he's in is full of it. You know, it's just small touches like that that, I reckon, like, if you give it more watches, you'll pick up more and more. Because I didn't see that the first time, and there's especially his facility or his office, you know, that kind of building he's in has a lot on, like, the walls and stuff that I wasn't. I was focusing on the story, so I would kind of I was like, oh, I'll give it another look. I reckon there's more character development and arcs and stuff that have snuck into to the background in some way, and I think it was all handled really, really well. So it's kind of an all-rounder in that sense, but there are... It's not perfect. It And I would say neither is the original. Mm. But I feel that this can have that kind of evergreen cult presence that the original hasn't maybe even elevated a bit because it's kind of more polished and newer and it's just good to have a theatrical version of a Blade Runner film that I can recommend to someone because I wouldn't do that for the original theatrical cut of Blade, or I wouldn't put anyone in front of that, unless to say, I'll listen to that narration, it's not very good. But, like, it. I appreciate that this didn't pick which version it was a sequel to as well. That That's... I think that adds to it. That makes it special. I think it's just an overall great sequel.
0: I can agree with the you're saying, apart from watching the original cut, because... Um, I kind of have a soft spot for it. I think it's it's an interesting kind of viewing experience to, I think, for for filmmakers to see when a filmmaker loses control of a feature and to see when a studio tries to retool something. And it's it's so different. It's so jarring. I mean, people talk about the final cut. Um, I'm I'm on record as saying I kind of prefer the, the director's cut that Scott went back because I think it's. There is that sense of coming back to the Deckard question, but it's not forced home. It's not rammed down your throat, and you're not given an answer one way or, or another. But but on that note of Ridley Scott, you know, much has been made of the fact he's not returning here as a director, whereas he did with, say, the Alien films. And I don't want to go down, because we've talked at nauseam in all the podcasts about Ridley Scott's involvement with the Prometheus and Alien Covenant. But what do you think of this idea of, of him coming back just as an... Uh, Producing level and and I have to say that probably I think helped the you've talked there about the practical effects side of thing because Ridley Scott is one thing he's really good at is building worlds and visuals, and I mean he is one of the best filmmakers I think personally at that, possibly matched by Denis Villeneuve, which we've seen with you know Arrival, but you know how did you find that experience of it's a Ridley Scott produced but but how did you find Denis Denis Villeneuve did behind the behind the camera as the director uh, on this project?
1: I'm glad they did it that way because it's this fresher take I feel that Ridley Scott was kind of in movie jail for a while Um, and then he kind of dug himself out a bit with The Martian Um, but I feel that if he had of went back there would have been more people looking for something to criticise and it could have been a much more polarising film so they just get the Wonder Boy that done Arrival and and you know has been tapped for all these bigger sci-fi projects. Like he's locked into June and uh, there's I, I there's you know rumors and rumors of what he'll jump onto, but I feel that he didn't take it like the way he didn't look at it the way he looked at Arrival, and he didn't look at it as like he's in. Ridley Scott's world playing ball but he also like he knew what he was doing when he took it on and he's been in interviews and said that but it was like having fresh eyes on an old thing to kind of elevate it and that's something I keep saying that it just expands from the first one especially in universe like the way the little touches he's done to like clean up some of the technology or cleaning up some of the locations has made it this kind of it's an interesting future to look at. And if I feel like Ridley Scott could have done the same thing, but I feel like it's better to have that kind of new blood with him than producing. So you can kind of combine a new guy and the original guy and kind of steer it in that right direction. Like I, I think because it is a sequel, they got the right blend of old and new. So I'm glad Ridley Scott didn't direct it. But I'm glad he was there.
0: I do think had Ridley Scott been the director, I do think the Deckard question probably would have been answered. And I I think that's the one thing I'm kind of glad that we haven't got. Um, I have a huge soft spot for the stuff Ridley Scott does. I am going to steal your term cinema jail or movie jail. I'm going to steal that from now on. Just before we wrap up, the film hasn't found a big audience. Uh, at the the cinema and I suppose it's just kind of that question John just before we kind of go is like why do you think that's the case? Because I mean this is a film you and I are sitting here, we've been talking for nearly 15 minutes, waxing lyrical because okay we're saying it's not perfect but we're saying it's a pretty damn good film Um, it's a, a belated sequel to a film that's seen by many as a classic but why do you think it has? Do you think it's some people are primarily putting it down from cinema distributors and exhibitors I spoke to a lot of them are putting it down primarily to that near three hour runtime. I, 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 part of me think that's an almost too simplistic kind of approach. Cause I mean, some of the Marvel stuff's now sitting, uh, pushing to the two and a half hour mark. You know, it's, I just don't think to say this film's near three hours. That's why people are being put off. Cause I you know I sat at the IMAX in opening weekend and it was jam packed. And I, I just kind of see like, Whoa. That's why I kind of went, when I came out of that, couldn't get in, I had to go to a different IMAX, there's two IMAXs in London, sadly we don't have any here in Belfast, but I couldn't get a seat for, for two screenings, had to go across town to a different different IMAX, the the, the BFI IMAX, and it was jam-packed. And I went, okay, this film's going to do, do good, came out of it, you know, you kind of, not that you're a weirdo, you eavesdrop in people's conversations, they seem to be largely positive heard of people, a few people saying I'm gonna go see it again, and you come back and you go you start looking into a few websites and stuff, and you go, "Oh, it's bombed in America." I don't know why it hasn't found an audience. Um, do you have any kind of reasoning why, or do you think like like me, do you think it's too simplistic to say it's the the three-hour runtime?
1: I don't think it's the runtime completely. I think it's that it's a sequel, thirty years on to a cult classic that didn't do that well when it first came out, and that everyone who was excited for a sequel to Blade Runner and who likes Blade Runner was there on opening weekend. So then they all sifted out. And anyone that probably seen the trailer, or seen it in advertising, like the, the general populace, they probably thought it was a sequel. Then I think most people knew it was a sequel. So they didn't want to go back and watch the first one. And I'm surprised it didn't make more based on the fact that Gosling's in it because he's a big box office draw at the minute. But like I don't think it could be blamed on the runtime because there's like you were saying about the Marvel films, the same side with um DC stuff. Batman versus Superman's really long and It's not very good either. No it's not. Um and the, the that longer cut's worse. Um but like in runtime it's really long. Um but People went. Everyone who wanted to see Batman fight Superman went opening weekend, regardless of runtime. And the drop off wasn't because of its runtime. It was because every all the critics had been saying and word of mouth that it wasn't very good. Whereas this, I'm surprised it dropped so quick because word of mouth has been quite good. But I do think a lot of people that like I had said about the trailer being misleading. I do think a lot of people had come out of the cinema and said somebody listen this is kind of slow or this is, it's a bit long and it's a bit slow and the action isn't really all there, you know, it's not like a Fast and Furious film where you can go and sit down it's just wall to wall non-stop for the whole runtime, and they are quite long as well, like as Fast and Furious went on it's got longer but people still go because it takes you on like a thrill ride whereas this is a slow burner noir science fiction story and unless it's Star Wars, science fiction doesn't tend to genuinely do as well and at the same time it a lot of money went into this so it's going to be hard for it to, to pick it back up I do think maybe they shot themselves in foot by pumping so much into it based on what it was I'm glad they did because you can really see that it was funded to the amount that, that, that elevated it but on some level I think they knew it wasn't going to go, i seen an article something about they knew it was going to bomb but you know at the same time you see a lot of films like uh, for example Dread picked up a lot more money on home release and digital downloads I think this will go that way as well especially if they like start packing it with the original or they have a whole behind the scenes special feature section a lot of fans are going to buy it and then you know a year down the line, or coming up to Christmas or something, release like a different version in a different box, and we're
0: not going through all that again. We're yeah. not having a director's cut of this. You know, I think that's one thing I've heard about Dennis Villeneuve. He's like this is the final cut of the film. So you're like, thank you, sir, thank you so much. I don't want to go through that. Like seven different versions. I don't even want to hear talk of maybe even cutting it down. You know, that's the film. That's it, done and dusted. You know, you know, as much. I think part of me thinks that mythos around the original Blade Runner. A lot of it's down to that retinkering. I think that kind of fact that it was a flawed film, Ridley Scott returned to so many times to try and fix. You know, I think that's why that film has entered into pop culture in the way that it has. This, you know, as I say, no, please, no. I don't want to I don't want an over three-hour version of Blade Runner. I would happily sit through it, but I think you know, I, I want to see this is the this is the final definitive version. But I do hope that when they do, because extras have become a bit of a scarcity on Blu-rays now. I want to see a a Blu-ray packed with loads of extras, you know, interviews with Scott Villeneuve, Harrison Ford, just being grumpy. I'd happily sit through two hours of grumpy Harrison Ford. But, you know, please, no. No, 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 no. We, do, we don't need an extended cut of this film. So just before we wrap up, anything else? What's your last thoughts on Blade Runner 2049? And anybody who hasn't seen it, John, how would you sell it to them to say, get down to your cinema whilst it's still on? Because we're near we're coming into kind of Star Warsy time all that kind of stuff only a month away. So now before it leaves the cinema why what would you say to people to try and get them to see this film on the big screen?
1: I'd say if you are a sci-fi fan, you should go. If you have watched the first one and still haven't went in on this one, go. Um it's this uh visually it's a stunning film. So even if you're not really sold on the story from what you've heard, I'd say you have to see it. And I'd say see it in the cinema on a big screen, and with the surround sound for the score and the performances are all great ninety nine percent of the time. <laughs> and uh... even if you're a Harrison Ford fan or a Gosling fan, you still haven't went in. You should like it's just this slow burn mystery science fiction film where where it's such an interesting world and such such interesting characters that you'll just find yourself maybe a week or a day or an hour after you've seen it, where you'll just remember something you've seen from it and be like, oh, that was really interesting. Like, I think all around, it is a strong film. It's not 100%, but it's... I think it'll stand a test of time for people as well, so I'd say go see it in the cinema, because that is the biggest screen we can currently see something on. And with a film that's such a kind of visual feast, you need to see it there first. And if you like Blade or you've probably already seen it, so <laughs> go go see it. It's it's pretty good. Okay.
0: Thank you very much, John. Thank you. So that's my interview with John and we'll move swiftly on and uh, as I said at the start of this podcast Secret Cinema in London have recently announced that they're going to be putting on special screenings of the final cut of Ridley Scott's original Blade Runner. I'm a huge fan of the film, it's it's on record I've talked about it ad nauseum, I love this film but I thought it would be a chance to catch up with Joseph McElroy to see what he thought about the film and talk about the lasting impact and the legacy that Blade Runner has had upon cinema.
1: I've. Seen things you people wouldn't believe. Hmm. Attack ships on fire off
0: the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the a Gate. All those
2: moments will be lost. In time, like
0: tears in rain. Time. So, that's a clip of Blade Runner, and I'm joined now by Joseph McElroy, and we're going to be talking about the film. And uh, I think, Joseph, the key thing we have to set out right from the get-go here, what version of Blade Runner are we going to discuss? Like, I mean, there's think there's seven different versions. So what version of Blade Runner are you happy discussing? I know it sounds we're being really convoluted and really artsy-fartsy, but I think it just keeps it nice and simple.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, in terms of the different versions that I've seen... uh I'd probably be most comfortable probably talking about the final cut because it's the one I'm most familiar with. It's the one I've seen most recently, so that's what I'm like well versed in. Boo, boo on you, sir! I mean, I,
0: I have I have issues with the final cut. I mean, it's a case that for me, the Deckard question, which is a key part of Blade Runner, I think it's slightly become overstated over the years. I think the final cut takes away any of the ambiguity about that discussion but it also overstates its importance within the overall narrative. Like I'm The, the version I saw first is the version I love. It's still the, the director's cut. I think it was out in the 90s. I think it was out on the 10 years after the film. And it's still flawed. And there's no denying Blade Runner is a flawed film, I think. But I think the fact that Scott has returned it so many times has only added to its mystique. The fact that it's a flawed film by a director who's determined to fix it and and a film that he sees as a classic that he wants to, to see
2: it in the way that he wants do you think like, I mean for you do you think that's something that's definitely the case yeah definitely like uh, I was actually watching a documentary about it uh, I think it was called On the Edge of Blade Runner and he was talking about how he was in a matter of days of having the film pulled away from, from producers so at the time he actually made it it seemed like a very rushed ending so he's like i have to wrap this up and then once they actually did preview screenings like the first cut he had was something like four hours and people were like oh yeah it's beautiful and all but what the hell is this thing about you know they just didn't know so then that led to the whole idea of the narration and that being added and you know I even harrison ford hated doing that as well you could even tell if you listen it he just does not care at all about doing it but uh yeah it's just as it was actually the director's cut that you're talking about the one in the early 90s that was released it was it like came about because they were doing like a screening of it and they accidentally sent out the original like cut without the narration or anything and people like caught on to it and were like actually this is really good you know they started you know appreciating it more and uh taking on board so then over the years you know it's gained that cult following and then it's brought it more to scott's attention and then He's always stated his intentions as to, you know, Deckard being a replicant, and he's steadfast in that. Even right to now, he still believes he is a replicant. So that's why he probably chose to, like, make it his absolute goal to make sure that's what his intention is when he released the final cut in 2007, I think it was.
0: Yeah, I I just have an issue. I think the Deckard question, when I first watched the film, I think I've I've written about this in my review of Blade Runner 2049. When I first watched it, I was probably too young to really comprehend it all. So that idea that, that he was a replicant never really crossed my mind. And it's only then through, like I think that documentary you're talking about, I think was Mark Kermode? Yes, um, yes, yes. Through talking about that, I think, oh, this is a thing, that Tech a replicant. But you know, we were talking earlier in, in this week's show to uh, John Monaghan about that and I think it, it kind of devalues the film a little bit that he's hunting down replicants and that he has to go through this emotional kind of this this transformation throughout the film and I think it kind of slightly devalues that but, you know, that's that's a conversation for another day but, I mean, Ridley Scott clearly has his idea that, that Deckard is a replicant I... I think when you look at the final cut, there's no way around it where you can't see that he's not a replicant. I mean, I suppose for you, you're you're basing this. we're basing this discussion on the final cut. For you, is it as clear-cut as that? I mean, have you always kind of believed, as you watch the film, that he is indeed a replicant?
2: Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm definitely with Ridley Scott in it. However, after seeing the latest Blade Runner, I'm starting to question it again, and it's caused me to like actually go back on the film, like the original... And reflect upon it, and and you know I probably will actually go over the other cuts of it, even though it's not Ridley's intentional cut and what he loves, but like other filmmakers actually love different cuts. Like I think the original cut Guillermo del Toro says it's his favorite with the narration and all. But uh, for me, yeah, he's always been a replicant because the clues are there, and it's like you said, he has made it his intention. Like there's the scene where Deckard's in the background and Rachel's in the foref- forefront, and his eyes were red and glowing just like replicants. Are supposed to, and uh, even Scott talks about the scene where Deckard is uh, at the piano and he's just hitting one or two keys on it. And there's all these old photographs, and yeah, kind of hints at, well, for me anyway, it hints at you know, their memories that have been implanted and their photos are just placed there. And then that, from there, you get the unicorn dream, which suggests, okay, that's his dream, is in the same way that he would talk to Rachel about, oh, these are your dreams, this is your past, and he tells her more or less you're a replicant in a very cool way. Uh, So, yeah, that's why I think, you know, Deckard is a replicant. But then again, that's because Scott's blatantly stated that in the final cut.
0: You have been indoctrinated, my friend. Uh, (laughs) I I think for me, that's the point I've always said. It's like literally where he's hitting us over the head with the camera or hitting us over the the head with the book of Philip K. Dick's source material and saying he is a replicant. And it's like, I kind of go, we get it. Ridley. I, look, I don't want to get too hung up on this specific kind of question because, as I've said, I think it's slightly overstated because I think Blade Runner, aside from the, the Deckard question, is just a fantastic piece of filmmaking. It's a film, piece of filmmaking I still argue is ahead of its time. It's 1982, it was out. You know, Harrison Ford, you know, you think of the roles he's done in the past, before that, I mean, it's so different. Ridley Scott was pretty early out. Pretty early on in his career, I mean, and it's such a different film, yet also similar to the likes of Alien This kind of downbeat view of the future, this dystopian future ruled by big business, and you know, even like I touched on this earlier, the you know, we've got the Tyrell company, but it's great to know that in this dystopian future, companies like Atari, Coca-Cola, they still exist, they flourish. You know, so it's, that's reassuring, at least. So. But that's my thoughts. I mean, what is it about, aside the Deckard question, what is it for you that you really love about the original film?
2: Well, for the original, it's right from the very opening shot when you have uh, you know, this overview of all of Los Angeles in 2019 and you have you know, the fire spewing from the buildings and stuff like that there and then that Vangelis score kicks in as well. You're just automatically transported to another world. And it's just, it's just absolutely beautiful and stunning. And then as you're taken through the world, like uh, uh, through what's, it's really just a simple plot and a simple story. It's just a detective has to find these replicants, stop them, and that's it. But it's because it's that simple, he's, able, you know, Scott's able to expand upon it in such a way. You know, it's just a visual masterpiece, and that, um, you know, I, I actually. Going back to that documentary, originally the script was a very enclosed sort of film, and it's like just took place in apartments and you know police stations and that. But Scott was like, no, 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 expand upon. It. I want to know more about this world, and I think he chose that, and you know, dividends in the actual film itself. And for me, that's what just draws me in the Blade Runner every time. And then like when I actually went to the screen of it last year, you know, actually seeing it in the big screen for the first time, like I was getting goosebumps throughout it, through all them you know iconic images. And then you have that tears and rain speech at the very end that was the moment I was like right, that this is truly something special and for me it's the best film ever made that was just that very moment that I just realised that's it and no more you know yeah I I agree with all you were saying I think
0: when you look back it's kind of weird when you see the kind of making of Blade Runner that so much of that city scape that we see it's just one street that's turned over and changed from set design and that's something Ridley Scott is he's He's entrenched in that. Like, I mean, he, that's how he got into the filmmaking business. He started out with with sets and set design, and you see that paying off dividends. Now, you've mentioned, of course, tears Tears in the Rain brings us on nicely. Of course, then to Roy Batty, and I know we touched on this earlier when I when I spoke to John about. You know, I think that's one thing. Blade Runner twenty forty nine lacks is a is a complex, rounded villain. Roy Batty and Co. They're not villain of the week. You know. They have a reason. Okay, they do pretty bad things, let's be honest. They do some pretty horrible things, a lot of it off screen, you know, before this film starts. But the reason they do the things they do is out of necessity. They want more life. Like, I mean, these are synthetic beings who want more than the four years of life allocated to them. We don't really get that in the sequel. And I don't want to veer too much into the sequel talk, but it's one of the things I've always loved. And when I rewatch it, the more I kind of think weirdly, and you can disagree with me if you wish. You could almost paint Deckard as as the film's villain because he's literally the man that's kind of preventing them. It's like that kind of classic switcheroo of the protagonist and the antagonist. You know, he's he's switching them those roles, and he his he's the man that's that stop man replicant wherever we go, who's who's charged with stopping these guys from ultimately attaining what they want and what seemingly is impossible of of more life I don't know maybe that's me being too artsy-fartsy or reading too much into the film but I mean is that something you'd agree with disagree or are you going to hit me over the head
2: well no no I tend to agree to the point uh, you know it's definitely painted that way when you look at it and you could even go to Ridley Scott and ask for another cut where. <laughs> no <laughs> <Is there>? no <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, no you can definitely see at that point because you know there are motivations are, you know, very honest and open. It's like they just, like you said, they just want more life. And, uh, you know, when you're just... But at the same time, when you view Deckard in the film, he doesn't even want to catch them at first. He's being pulled back in a job he doesn't even want to do. But, uh, yeah, that's it's definitely a valid point, you know, in that... You know, it's up to a point where Batty is actually a villain, you know, at the very end, where he's hunting Deckard down himself... You know, he's kinda of switching the rules like, you know, you know, you were hunting us but I'm hunting you. And it's in that last moment he learns to appreciate life and he saves Deckard from falling to his death. And then that's his true heroic moment in a way. You know, Would
0: you say that like I mean it's, again this is just a thought off the top of my head. Do you think that by the end of the film that Roy Batty's character is redeemed? Do you think like, I mean I'm just it's it's just a thought off the top of my head, but it's just to see what you thought just from what you're saying
2: there? Yeah, definitely. I think that's the intention of, like, that Rugger Howard's was probably going for when he made the Tears and Rain speech himself. He's like, OK, well, bad like this, but I want him to have a good send-off, and I want him to have that bit of moral ambiguity as a, you know, a supposed villain. So he does have that redemption at the end, I think, you know, when he just describes, you know, he just goes to Decker, or more or less, you know, I get it now. You know, I understand the importance of life, and how important it is to you, and that there, so, you know, that's why he goes through the speech, and that's the importance of it in the end, you know?
0: Yeah, and we're talking here about Roy Batty, another central character, and of course she's a big part of Blade Runner 2049, we can't really talk about why. We have Rachel, who I think when you first meet her, she is portrayed as the classic femme fatale, and when you watch it the first time round, when you know the kind of tropes from that kind of classic P.I. genre, you think, well... She's not a good you know. She's bound to be involved. But when you watch it, I mean, you know, it's a film that's it's, it's as old as me. I I was I was born in 1982. I feel free. We can slightly talk freely about that film. But I mean, she's she's no villain. She's nothing. She's no femme fatale. She's she's fragile yet also very, 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 very strong. Like I mean, she, car- the character in, in 2049 who most reminds me of her is is love. Yes. But yet, love is kind of like the what if Rachel was the complete opposite? What if Rachel was that classic femme fatale? We don't get that in the original. I mean, her character is so important to not just Deckard's kind of story itself, but also the kind of general kind of ethos and idea of Blade Runner. Like, what makes us human?
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And you've just touched upon, you know, uh, her being like love. I think there's elements of the character of Joy in her as well. You know, that innocence to her. And you do feel a great deal of sympathy for once you know she like she goes to Decker and starts asking you know you know the question of whether you know her actual nature, and then she knows for sure. Okay, I'm a replicant. And then you know, like I said, it brings in that question. You know what it means to be human in that there, and uh, yeah, it's it's just a very complex character, but in a brilliant way, you know. And she's portrayed very well by Sean Young in the film, and. Uh, yeah, just going back to twenty-four, believe or twenty forty nine, twenty forty-nine. Um, the way she's brought back into that there as well, it's it's like that's how the two films are actually just perfectly lead on from one to another, despite the huge gap in terms of time. And um, her relationship with Deckard is that bridge that you know gaps it to, and actually that relationship in twenty forty-nine it gives more meaning to the actual relationship they had in the original because it seems very strange and off, you know. Off kilt, in a way, in the original, like the way he kind of like forces himself upon her and stuff like that. There, but uh, you know, you can see how that relationship has developed once you get to the next one. Uh, but yeah, she was, a, she was a great character, I find.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Like, generally, going back from specifics from individual characters, taking it back because we're going to probably wrap things up shortly. For you, when you look back now, is uh, so again, I know we're talking about the final cut here, which was only out a few years ago. But where can you see if the legacy and impact that a film like Blade Runner has had
2: upon cinema and the legacy that it's that it's left? I think uh, mainly in a visual terms, you know, that's you can definitely see Blade Runner's impact on not only uh, within cinema, science fiction within cinema, sorry, uh, but science fiction in general. You can just see, you know, picture that world. In other stories, like uh, even just taking an example of cinema, you just look at uh, the fifth element in the nineties. That's basically this, the, You could more or less say that's the exact same world as Blade Runner in a way, except you know it's very heightened and you know uh, and more you know, kind of flamboyant in that there in its nature. But uh, it's not only that, like it really has had a visual impact in cinema, not even within cinema, actual architecture as well, modern day architecture. Because I have a friend who studies architecture, and he told me one day, "Oh, we had to watch Blade Runner." I was like, "Why?" Oh. and then he started explaining, you know, the nature of the films and their design and everything, and how it's influenced so much uh, ever since its release. And um, and even when you like watch documentaries and you hear filmmakers, like the majority of them, like well known ones, like I mentioned Guillermo del Toro, he said he was hi- heavily influenced by. It. And then uh, in that same documentary, Frank Narbonne said, "You know, it's it's one of his favorite films of all time." Uh, so, like I said, just the visuals alone have, you know, changed the game in terms of filmmaking. It may not have been, like, instant. It may have been just more of a... due to its cult following, you would see it appear now and again, and then people would be like, well, where's that from? Because it wasn't nearly common except for the huge fan base. But it's as, you know, the film's gained a lot more of attention and a lot more new um credibility over time. That's where you're able to see it now, and that's why it's so revered right now. It's because of its you new know, actual visual impact.
0: Okay, now that's the kind of general kind of impact and legacy. We're going to wrap things up, but we're going to bring it back and make it much more personal. Like, for you... I mean, I've, I've talked on record about the impact that Blade Runner's had on me nobody wants to hear me talk about that again but for you, like, I mean what does a film like Blade Runner represent to you and that kind of impact it had on your, your taste in cinema and, or did it have an impact on your taste in cinema I mean, is this a film that is up there and do you, I know it's a bit lofty, but do you revere it, Are you love it or is,
2: are you someone who sees that it's importance slightly overstated well for me, like I said, I think it is definitely one of the greatest films ever made. Not Like, initially, because of the visuals, that's the thing that really drew me in. Once I was drawn into it, and, you know, you actually look at it. It's the actual, you know, themes within the film. It's like, you know, like you said, you know, what it means to be human and the existentialism that exists within that. And it's not only just that element, it's the actual neo-noir sort of element to it and the, the detective story uh, and the way that plays out and, you know, the whole... Uh, the nature of you know, how uh, it's more or less you know, trying to find these replicas. like a puzzle, and it's him taking it apart and trying to find out uh, who you know, you know, where they were. Uh, but like I said, in general, like it's made me appreciate films a lot more. Like I wasn't uh, probably would have been one of the first films that made me really truly appreciate cinema. Uh, it was, and then it made me go, okay. Well, what films influenced it? And then you know, you go back as well as you would go forward, trying to find films like that because I loved it so much. And then from there, I was able to like you know go through various films, uh, not even from Scott himself, but like beyond that within science fiction, you can see everything goes back to Blade Runner at the end of the day. So it's because mainly it's influence uh, on film that I really come to love love it, and and like it's kind of a reciprocal thing, you know not just me loving it, but like you know it's had me appreciate and love film itself you know
0: I thought for a second you were going to say believe other loves me but that will not go down <laughs> that <Yeah>. note <laughs> will not will not go down that note like that's a perfect note to to leave this uh, thank you very much joseph so that pretty much brings this podcast to a close thank you as always for listening we'll be back soon with another episode if you can't wait until then don't forget you can check out our website for our complete back catalog but For now, until our next episode, goodbye.